This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, and here on episode 14, we delve into the sometimes overlooked geopolitics of cultural heritage in Antarctica, and also consider how the humanities can help us comprehend the continent and its place in international affairs. I'll be speaking to three polar historians who recently returned from Argentina, where they attended a major conference on the Antarctic humanities. Peter Roberts, Lisa Marie Vanderwatt, and first up, Dagavango, who studies the interface of resource extraction, science, and geopolitics in the polar regions. Together with Lisa Marie, he's currently preparing an expedition to Antarctica to document the remains of a Swedish-Argentinian-Norwegian scientific mission from the turn of the 20th century. Here on the podcast, he explains how and why history and heritage are entangled in Antarctic geopolitics. Despite the fact that we have an Antarctic Treaty, which uh, makes Antarctica as a space for science and international cooperation in science and a continent for peace, which is stipulated in the Antarctic Treaty and which is the, the grand narrative about Antarctica. Despite that fact, you still have states who have sovereignty claims to different parts of the Antarctic continent, and some of these sovereignty claims are overlapping. The Antarctic Treaty was supposed to freeze those claims and it did, but uh, the states maintain the claims nevertheless in anticipation of a future where the Antarctic Treaty might look different or might not be there. That's the main historical context that makes geopolitics a feature of Antarctica. History and heritage is connected to that for two reasons. One is that in a rather general sense, if you want to make a claim to have influence over a territory anywhere in the world, but especially in a place like Antarctica where you don't have an indigenous population there, you don't have a population at all except for the scientists well then you need to uh, justify that claim based on something and in the general sense that has to do with history you have to say that well our nation has had a long uh, period of time we have had people active in various activities be they resource extraction or scientific research you need to be able to show that you have a longer history to get a legitimacy if you would be from a country that had never had citizens visiting Antarctica or never interacted with Antarctica you just for making a claim would be less. And so all of the states that have a claim to a sector in Antarctica has a historical connection there. In order to uh, justify these claims, they are in different contexts, of course, mentioning this history. And it comes out in everything from um, public statements and narratives presented in, in various contexts about Antarctica to more um, conscious funding for projects that would emphasize this history. It can be publications or museum exhibitions or the designation of cultural heritage sites. So it's a part about building legitimacy for claims. It also has to do with one of the most important doctrines in international law regarding unpopulated, unclaimed lands. And that is the law of effective occupation. So according to this law, which was drawn up by the uh, colonial powers when they divided up Africa in the Berlin Congress in the 1880s, one of the uh, basic agreements there was that in order to have a justifiable claim to a certain territory, in, in order to claim sovereignty of a certain land, you would need to have an effective occupation of it. An occupation in the sense that you have an preferably economic activity going on there and uh, preferably that you have some kind of administration or some effective governing of this area. So you cannot just sail by and say everything from that end to that end belongs to Britain, but you would also have to actually use the territory. 
So then how do you prove effective occupation in a place where there's no people living, where you don't have an indigenous population? Well, there's many ways you can do that. And if we take, for example, Britain, who has had a claim to the Antarctic Peninsula area, they have proved their effective occupation through trying to exercise sovereignty by regulating whaling activities. But they have also used the argument that uh, historically they have had explorers visiting these sites, these areas of the Antarctic Peninsula, mapping them, building stations there. The remains of those stations that British scientists and explorers have built, some of them are standing, some of them are just physical remains. They, in a way, represent evidence of a form of effective occupation, effective usage. So it connects with this legal doctrine, because history can be said to represent activity, use, management, exercising of sovereignty. So in that sense, historical sites and history can be used to strengthen your position in a contested area. Does this doctrine, in the context of the Antarctic Treaty, does this doctrine have any legal standing, or is this just more on a discursive level? It's more on a discursive level, yes, absolutely. It's not in the Antarctic Treaty. In the Antarctic Treaty, the claims are frozen. So this has to do with how international law has been used in different conflicts over unpopulated, in some cases populated lands over the 20th century. This is a way foreign office administrations and diplomats are trained in thinking. In Antarctica, you have a lot of historical sites, a whole list of them, that are protected as historical sites and monuments. And that's part of the uh, legislation within the Antarctic Treaty System. And uh, these have been nominated by the different parties to the treaties during meetings within the Antarctic Treaty framework. And what we are doing in this project is that we are investigating and trying to explain why these particular historical sites that are in this list, why they have become protected as official heritage in Antarctica. What did the different states that nominated them and the experts they consulted or not consulted? What did the different actors that were involved want out of this? And so the sites that we are looking at during this uh, Shack 2020 expedition, they were inscribed as uh, heritage sites in 1972 on the initiative of Argentina. And they are remains from uh, the first Swedish Antarctic expedition in 1901 to 1903. This expedition was led by Otto Nordenskjöld, a Swedish geoscientist, and it was made up of scientists from uh, Sweden, also a scientist from Argentina, and uh, the ship captain was Norwegian. So it was a multinational uh, composition of the people who were on board of this expedition. They went to the Antarctic uh, Peninsula area and conducted different forms of scientific research. They built a station at an island called Seymour Island on a place called Snow Hill. Eventually, their expedition ship, the Antarctic, sank uh, on the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula while the expedition was dispersed in these three different places. Some were in Snow Hill, some were in a place called Hope Bay in English, Hoppetsbukt in Swedish, Esperanza in Spanish, and some of them were at an island called Paulette Island. They tried to survive there over the winter, waiting for rescue. The people at Snow Hill uh, had the house to survive in, but at uh, Hope Bay and uh, at Paulette Island, the uh, expedition members were there. They built huts out of stone. And they were eventually rescued by an Argentinian Navy ship coming down from Buenos Aires. And everyone survived. So this, this expedition has an historical connection to Sweden then, obviously, but also to Argentina and also to Norway through the captain of the ship, Captain Larsen. And the sites that it left behind, 
find the historical remains, namely the wooden house on Snow Hill and the two stone huts at Hope Bay and Paulette Island. They were considered by all parties involved as cultural heritage sites for obvious reasons. But for the Argentinians who actually took the initiative to nominate these sites, it of course also had a uh, certain political significance because Britain and Argentina has competing claims in Antarctica to the very same area, to the Antarctic Peninsula. Also Chile claims the same area, but the real controversy about it, the tensions are between Argentina and Britain. And so to the Argentinians, the fact that this expedition had an Argentinian member, that it cooperated with Argentina in terms of loading the ships with supplies and uh, preparing for the expedition together with the Argentinian officials, and the fact that the expedition was eventually rescued by the Argentinian Navy, creates a strong historical connection between Argentina and these sites that remain from it. They are using it to um, strengthen their claim to have a right, sovereign rights over the Antarctic Peninsula area. That's how these sites connect with the geopolitics of this region. They function as a form of anchor points for a narrative in support of the Argentinian connection to the Antarctic Peninsula. That was Dag Ivango from KTH Royal Institute of Technology, who was recently appointed Professor of History at Luleå Technical University in northern Sweden. Next is Lisa Marie Vanderwatt, a polar historian at KTH who shares her insights into the official cultural heritage protection process in Antarctica. An official process for designating cultural heritage is one of the first processes that they've put in place once the Antarctic Treaty started meeting, the country started meeting. And this process has been revised over the years, even though heritage was never really on the top of the agenda. The most recent revision is from 2015 onward. They decided, and with they, I mean mostly some of the claimant countries, that the heritage process needs to be revised in order to solve the conflict between between having to remove waste or what is thought of as waste from Antarctica and protecting historical values. And they wanted to stop a proliferation of historic sites and monuments. So they established what is called an intersessional contact group and parties who are interested could put forward their ideas. And mostly parties that were interested were countries such as Argentina, the UK, Norway, countries that tend to have more historic sites and monuments themselves but also who tend to use it as a way of legitimizing their presence in a more overt fashion. But other countries also, of course, made a contribution, such as Russia and the US. It is also the first time they actually brought in heritage professionals through consulting the International Polar Heritage Committee, trying to bring it in line with international regulations or international ways of thinking, meaning UNESCO. This being the Antarctic Treaty, the system, they would never directly bring in UNESCO. They want to keep the UN out of Antarctica, so to speak. At the moment, the process is new. There's new guidelines that forces countries to go through a bit more elaborate process before they put forward historic sites. And it was likely that it will then take longer and it will also follow very specific definitions. So an incentive for a country to try to have some object recognized as cultural Mm -hmm. heritage, the incentive is either to fortify 
their legitimacy, their, their claims in Antarctica, mm-hmm. but also just because they don't want to have to pay the cost of actually removing this thing. That could be an incentive. It's not always um, some countries are accused of doing this more easily than others. It also depends on whose values you are looking at. Some things would have been declared heritage anyway, I think, if you would have called in outside completely independent professionals. But some obviously have that specific goal. If you think of the fact that most of these historic sites and monuments started off the first list being things that come from the heroic era, and of course some countries would claim that as specific to them. But there's also an argument to be made that some of these sites are really important sites for how humankind interacted with Antarctica, regardless of the politics involved. It's a balance. You also mentioned that they want to keep UNESCO and the UN... Yeah, the Antarctic Treaty System is set up in a way to avoid bringing in the UN. This has historic roots. I mean, in the 1980s, especially, the question was brought up at the UN on whether or not that wouldn't be a better forum for governing Antarctica. Partly, it was driven by the minerals negotiations, the non-aligned movement countries wanted to. It was literally put in the debates their piece of the pie. And one of the ways in which they did that is they said that South Africa, which was part of the Antarctic Treaty from the beginning, if they've been kicked out of the UN General Assembly, why are they still part of the Antarctic Club? And the other countries or the other consultative parties really didn't want the UN to interfere. It is thought of as a system that works because it works outside of these international systems. Plus, Antarctica is not a country, so <laughs> it's not a territory and it's also a way to deal with this sovereignty issue. You know, that's why they will draw on the expertise of the International Polar Heritage Committee, which is an advisor to UNESCO. That's why they wouldn't directly involve UNESCO. That was Lisa Marie Vanderwatt here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And finally, we finish the episode with a commentary by Peter Roberts, Associate Professor at the University of Stavanger in Norway, who makes the case for studying Antarctica from the perspective of the humanities and explains how the field has evolved over the past decade. I'm back from a very interesting few days in Ushuaia, the very southern tip of Argentina in Tierra del Fuego, for the annual conference of the Standing Committee on Humanities and Social Sciences of the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, better known as SCAR. Now, I first started going to these meetings way back in 2007, when it was a small group devoted to history, and specifically events around the International Geophysical Year, 1957-58. We could just about fit round one seminar table in Columbus, Ohio. A lot of veterans with their own memories. Interesting, but it was a long way from a professional group. Now, this year, there were over 130 scholars from all corners of the humanities and social sciences. Everyone from literature scholars, tourism researchers, anthropologists, historians, and a smattering of pretty much everything else. Now, the Antarctic humanities and social sciences have come a long way. And one might ask, isn't that surprising given that there aren't any people in Antarctica? Now, the answer to that is, well, firstly, there are... Their rotating cast of scientists, support officers, all kinds of people associated with keeping the daily, monthly, yearly work of research on the continent going. And there are also increasingly large numbers of tourists that come and go. The tourists are interesting for a couple of reasons, actually. Firstly, because there's intense debate about their impact, not only on the research being conducted in Antarctica, but also on the Antarctic environment itself. So the tourists have come to represent perhaps the most visible element of human engagement with the continent today. 
And of course, for the rest of us who perhaps haven't visited Antarctica, don't think of Antarctica very often, the continent still plays an increasingly important role, actually, in our daily lives. Back when the Antarctic Treaty was concluded in 1959, I think it's fair to say that for most people, the Antarctic was really an abstract concept. And even for the scientists who worked there, it was interesting almost mostly as a disembodied laboratory. You could conduct all kinds of interesting and, in terms of your own discipline, very important and useful research, but the relevance of Antarctica to the rest of the world perhaps wasn't quite so clear. Now, that's different today because of climate change. In fact, it's possible to argue that Antarctica may be the key to the future of the world in the coming century, in that if the particularly large ice sheets were to break off and melt, they could be the single biggest cause of sea level rise on a global scale. So Antarctica, far from just being an isolated part of the edge of the world, is actually something that's quite important, potentially, to everyone else. Now, this raises some interesting questions then about things like governance, the legal arrangements for Antarctica, the role of science. Who should be paying for the research? Should everyone have a say, potentially, in the research that's done there, given that perhaps those countries who are most susceptible to rising sea levels are often those who are least well equipped to actually pay for expensive scientific research? There's also the question of resource exploitation. Who should have the right to prospect for minerals, bioprospecting even, under what circumstances? There's currently a moratorium on mineral prospecting and exploitation in Antarctica. Runs till 2048, but that's not actually too far into the future and questions are already starting to be raised about what happens as that day gets closer and Antarctic natural resources may come back on the table. And questions like those keep international lawyers, political scientists and others quite interested in the future of the continent. And if you'll allow me to be cheeky, I'm going to finish with a thought about why Antarctica is interesting even to political philosophers. Take Antarctica as a thought experiment. Today, it's governed internationally, and science is regarded as the most important and interesting, I think the two fairly clearly hang together, thing that you can do in Antarctica. Science is the currency through which legitimacy is purchased that allows a state to take part in Antarctic decision-making. But what if we flip that on its head, taking into account the fact that ice sheets could ultimately play such a great role in the Earth's future in the medium to long term? Are the people who are most likely to suffer the consequences of that sea level rise the ones who should be having the greatest say in Antarctica? Now, in practice, that's going to be a very difficult thing to do, particularly as, as I'm sure you'll already be thinking, it's the release of CO2 and other gases into the atmosphere that causes that melting and not the actions of those countries themselves that are going to suffer from it. But these kinds of questions, I think, raise some pretty big points about justice. What do we mean by a just governance system? How do we relate influence over decision-making and the consequences of a particular space? One could even be cheeky and say, we know an awful lot about Antarctica now. Shouldn't the criterion for being involved in decision-making in Antarctica not be involvement in the knowledge production? We got a lot of that already. But participation in the things that will have a direct and concrete effect on Antarctica in the future and potentially the globe be they taking concrete steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or ensuring that there's some kind of fairness to the countries who may suffer from sea level rise. Philosophers are already starting to think about these questions. And if even political philosophers are starting to realise there are important and deep questions to be asked about Antarctica, Antarctica is a vehicle to think through some really big issues and what it means to have a just and right governance system. I think it's fair to say that Antarctica can be meaningful for a lot of the rest of us. So there we have it, the humanities and social sciences, relevant to the rest of the world, but indeed, even to Antarctica, a continent that we far too often think of as almost by definition not human. That was Peter Roberts, a polar historian from the University of Stavanger. 
You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.